You have a well-paying job that you like, a beautiful young family, and a big house. You're living the American dream. Right up until the minute that you discover it's all built on lies and deceit. Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of Jeffrey Wigand, the corporate executive and research scientist who fought to uncover the truth behind big tobacco and lost his own family in the process. This is a story that fundamentally altered one of the biggest industries in the world. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As Dr. Jeffrey Wigand walked into the offices of tobacco industry giant Brown & Williamson, he told himself that this was the start of the good life. It was January 1989, and the 47-year-old biochemist had just become the company's vice president of research and development in Louisville, Kentucky. A lifelong scientist, Jeff had started at the bottom of the corporate ladder after getting his Ph.D. in biochemistry, doing medical and biotech work at such companies as Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer. He'd been a hard-working employee, though his tendency to be outspoken and prickly hadn't always helped his career. In fact, by the time he got the Brown & Williamson job, he'd spent nearly a year out of work after a so-called corporate restructuring at his previous company. Jeff was also a couple years into his second marriage, after his first one had disintegrated over his ex-wife's health problems. His new wife, Lucretia, had grown up with money, and Jeff wanted to make sure he could give her and their baby daughter a comfortable life. So when the Brown and Williamson job came along, it was a godsend. Jeff's new salary was an impressive $300,000. He'd never earned anywhere near that much. Plus, it came with all the corporate perks, including a Mercedes-Benz, a country club membership, and first-class travel. When Jeff had first spoken to the Brown and Williamson, or B&W, team, he hadn't been so sure about working for a tobacco company. After all, he'd spent more than 20 years working in health and medicine. Tobacco companies were the enemy— His former colleagues warned him that he'd never be able to come back once he made the jump. But the reason that B&W wanted him, they said, was to help them follow the lead of other tobacco companies and develop a so-called safer cigarette. Since the 1960s, when cigarettes were first officially labeled as possibly being hazardous to a smoker's health, both public opinion and U.S. legislation had been shifting away from the tobacco companies. By the late 1980s, society had accepted that smoking was dangerous, though a quarter of the U.S. population still smoked. 
Not wanting to lose those customers and see their sales suffer, the next move for the tobacco companies was to create cigarettes that wouldn't be quite so damaging. As a scientist with a career in health and medicine, this was a cause Jeff could get behind. Not only was he getting a cushy executive salary, but he wasn't even having to sacrifice his morals to do it. As he walked through Brown and Williamson's front doors on his first day, he had every intention of using his skills and expertise as a scientific researcher for good. As keen as Jeff was to dive right into his mission, he was immediately unsettled to discover the state of the R&D labs that he was supposed to be running. It seemed as if the technology was decades out of date, the kind of stuff he hadn't seen since he was in school in New York in the 1950s. Just as concerning for Jeff was the fact that the team was missing crucial experts, including a toxicologist. And then there was the revelation from his bosses that B&W had apparently never previously researched the dangers of cigarettes. It seemed incredible to him that decades of debate and legislation about tobacco and public health had never prompted an investigation. But Jeff refused to be deterred. Clearly, there was a lot he could contribute to the company. He immediately got to work and over the coming weeks built out his team, bought new equipment, and implemented up-to-date processes. He started studying competitors' products, breaking down the ingredients of cigarettes, and investigating fire safety issues. If he was going to get to work on a safer cigarette, he and B&W had a lot of catching up to do. But then, three months into his new job, his bosses lost interest in the project. News had spread that the only so-called safer cigarette on the market, the premier from the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, had been pulled from shelves. Made with less tar than regular cigarettes, it was Big Tobacco's first concession to medical and public opinion, and it had been a commercial failure. No one wanted to buy it. To Jeff, it seemed as if B&W had only really wanted to create a safer cigarette in order to keep up with their competitors. Now they were just paying lip service to the project for optics, and because it helped them fend off criticism if they said they had a team working on it. It was tempting for Jeff to stop pushing. He could be a company man and just cash his paycheck. His family had a nice life. And he didn't want to sacrifice that just because his job hadn't turned out quite the way he'd planned. There was another, even more pressing reason to stay, too. His baby daughter was having a host of health problems. They weren't quite sure what was wrong with her, but she needed a lot of medical care and attention. He couldn't risk losing his health insurance. One way or another, Jeff had to figure out a way to make his job work. So he struck a happy medium. He continued to be a reliable corporate executive, running R&D in Louisville. But he also didn't give up on the small, underfunded team focused on the idea of a safer cigarette. They delved into the health implications of current B&W products and examined ways to decrease long-term harm to users. They were still behind the other companies, of course, but Jeff felt that they might eventually start to catch up. 
Less than a year after his arrival at B&W, in September 1989, Jeff attended a conference in Vancouver, British Columbia. There, scientists and executives from B&W and their parent company, British American Tobacco, gathered to discuss the development of safer cigarettes. Jeff was in his element. Everyone was on the same page, determined to use science to make smoking less deadly. He was thrilled to hear all the ideas bouncing around and looked forward to showing the possibilities to his bosses back in Louisville. Maybe this would convince them to take the project seriously again and show that a safer cigarette could make them money. But when he returned to the office, Jeff was surprised to be handed a three-page synopsis of the notes from the conference. He had previously asked that the 15 pages of minutes be given to the top brass. Instead, a B&W lawyer that he knew, a man named Kendrick Wells, had created this brief summary. He wanted Jeff to sign off on this one as the official takeaway from the conference. As Jeff read through the notes, he was confused. Nothing was mentioned here about either the known harm that cigarettes were doing or the possibilities for safer versions. This wasn't an accurate representation of the meetings he had been part of. When Jeff pushed back, though, he was told that these notes were all the company needed. There was no point in making a fuss about it. Not wanting to lose his job, Jeff agreed. He just had to keep going with his research. When his team could make a safer cigarette, it would all be worth it. But things continued to change. A B&W attorney was now present in every official R&D meeting as the notes taker. When Jeff reviewed these notes, he found them to be sanitized, edited, or just downright wrong. They didn't mention findings about carcinogens or addictiveness and glossed over details of tests for safer materials. When Jeff complained, the legal team made it clear that it could be damaging for the company if they kept paperwork suggesting they knew about the dangers of cigarettes. So Jeff started to keep his own detailed records, writing everything down each day. Despite the line from legal, Jeff still couldn't believe that the men at the top of B&W knew the extent of their product's danger. He needed to make them hear the truth. So he took his research and recommendations straight to other executives. But he was brushed off and told that his job was to make the company look good without damaging profits. Finally, Jeff demanded a meeting with B&W's president, Thomas Sandifer Jr. He had to tell Sandifer what was going on. In Sandifer's grand office, Jeff laid out the situation. He explained that his team, as well as those at other tobacco companies, had found that nicotine was highly addictive. They all knew that smoking caused cancer. So why was B&W denying it and not letting him develop a better alternative? Sandifer was dismissive. According to Jeff, the company president told him that he didn't want to hear another word about a safer cigarette. If they branded a new cigarette as safer, they would basically be admitting that their other products were unsafe. And if they acknowledged any evidence of addiction or cancer, that would be opening the company up to legal liabilities and hurt their sales. Sandifer would later deny saying this. 
Jeff was angry, but he couldn't bring himself to quit. He and his wife, Lucretia, had gotten used to his salary and their lifestyle. They were even thinking of having another baby. What's more, his daughter had finally been diagnosed with spina bifida and needed daily care. They were relying on his job's high-end health insurance more than ever. And yet, Jeff couldn't just forget about everything he'd learned. Now that he knew B&W executives were intentionally ignoring and hiding evidence about their product's health risks, he couldn't just be complicit. After all, he was still head of R&D. There had to be some way he could help make tobacco products less dangerous. By 1991, after he'd been at B&W for two years, Jeff started quietly researching the additives that the company put in its tobacco. These were chemicals supposedly intended to enhance flavor and freshness. But he had a feeling they could be contributing to health risks. Maybe changing these additives would be another way to produce a safer cigarette that could succeed on the market. Jeff would have to look into each of them before he took his findings up the chain. First, he looked at the compounds being added to the tobacco. Two of the biggest additives he noticed were the chemicals glycerol and ammonia. He immediately became concerned. Based on his previous biotech experience, he didn't think those chemicals were good for humans. The research proved him correct. Both could be deadly. Glycerol, in particular, became noticeably toxic when burned, which was exactly the point of a cigarette. Minimizing the claims that smoking was harmful was one thing, but they were adding extra chemicals to tobacco that were known to be poisonous. What were they thinking? Jeff didn't have to read for much longer to figure it out. Other research showed that chemicals like glycerol and ammonia, in fact, enhanced the human body's ability to absorb nicotine. In other words, they got the nicotine from the cigarette to a smoker's brain as fast as possible. B&W, along with all the other major tobacco companies, had turned their cigarettes into streamlined delivery devices for nicotine. Since nicotine was highly addictive, it appeared that they were deliberately trying to get as many people addicted as possible. Because that was how they would make more money. By 1992, 49-year-old Jeffrey Wigand had been at Big Tobacco Corporation Brown & Williamson for three years— and he discovered that the company was essentially poisoning smokers in order to get them addicted and keep them buying. Despite being the head of R&D, Jeff was becoming increasingly isolated at work. The more he discovered about the problems with the company's tobacco products, the less he cared about keeping his head down. He was tired of the culture of looking the other way and just trying to make the company look good in order to protect profits. He doubted that anyone else had even heard anything about his team's findings. The rest of the company had plausible deniability. Well, Jeff wasn't going to play along anymore. He started sounding off in meetings, making sure everyone knew just how dangerous cigarettes really were. He challenged his fellow executives about the ethics and science behind their products. 
B&W's president, Thomas Sandifer Jr., was becoming increasingly frustrated with Jeff. He'd warned the R&D exec before. Clearly, that hadn't been enough to make him stay quiet. So this time, Sandifer suggested that perhaps Jeff needed some help with his research. An aide, maybe, who knew all the ins and outs of the company's paperwork. Someone like in-house attorney Kendrick Wells. Jeff knew exactly what was going on when Kendrick was assigned to him. When Kendrick had taken notes for R&D in the past, he had simply doctored them in order to tow the company line. Clearly, he was now here to intimidate Jeff into doing the same. But Jeff wasn't going to be intimidated. If they wanted him gone, they'd have to fire him. And if they did, they would essentially be admitting they didn't care about creating a safer cigarette, which wasn't a great look for the company. So until they found a good excuse to get rid of him, Jeff was going to keep researching and creating a record of everything he found. Even with Kendrick looking over his shoulder, Jeff kept digging into additives. The next thing he came across was coumarin, a flavor enhancer. At that time, it was being used in the company's popular Sir Walter Raleigh pipe tobacco, giving it a pleasantly sweet flavor. It had long been known to be kind of similar to chemicals used in rat poison, but no one actually thought it was damaging to humans. Until late 1992, that is, when a new paper released by the National Toxicology Program revealed that coumarin, in fact, caused lung cancer. When Jeff read the paper, he immediately sent a memo to the company president, Sandifer, and other executives. He outlined the dangers of coumarin and begged them to stop using the additive in the pipe tobacco right away. He could not, in good conscience, continue to work there, knowing what coumarin was doing to their customers. Jeff was told that B&W was in fact already trying to phase out the use of coumarin in their products. They had been working on a replacement for some time. They just hadn't yet found one that delivered the same flavor enhancement. If they took the coumarin out without a replacement, sales would drop. They'd lose the customers and feared they wouldn't be able to get them back. They just weren't willing to take that risk. So the Sir Walter Raleigh tobacco would stay on the shelves, coumarin and all. Over the next few weeks, Jeff hoped in vain that his memo would get through to people and that the company would finally sit up and take notice. But he knew that there was little likelihood of that happening. He'd made a nuisance of himself and annoyed the other top brass, especially Sandifer. And so when in January of 1993, Sandifer was promoted to CEO, Jeff knew his days at B&W were numbered. Two months later, on March 24, 1993, Sandifer had him fired on grounds of poor communication and overall poor performance during his four years at the company, despite the fact that performance reviews from his first few years were all excellent. The moment he was informed of his dismissal, Jeff was offered a choice. If he was willing to sign a non-disclosure agreement, B&W would continue to give him severance pay and health insurance until he found a new job. Thinking of his wife and two young daughters, Jeff knew he had to take the deal. 
And then security guards escorted him out of the building, forcing him to leave everything behind, even his personal notebooks. For the first time in years, Jeff felt free. He started looking for other jobs, hoping to get out of tobacco and out of Louisville. But when he kept getting passed over in the final rounds, he started to wonder if B&W was sabotaging him. Or maybe the issue was that he couldn't talk about any of his work there. He had no intention of violating the NDA, but he needed to be able to tell potential employers about his achievements. Just as he was starting to get frustrated, he met up with a friend still working at B&W. Jeff took the opportunity to complain about Sandifer's behavior and his severance package, as well as the tight restrictions it had placed on him. At the time, this discussion had seemed like a friendly chat between friends, but it would come back to haunt Jeff. Several months later, in September 1993, B&W sued him, claiming that his conversation had violated his NDA. They could now end his severance pay and health insurance. Panicking, Jeff begged B&W not to go through with a lawsuit. Not only could he not afford to fight it, but his family needed the money and health care. He hadn't intended to break the NDA, and he wouldn't do it again. Finally, B&W's lawyers offered him a new agreement. This NDA was even more stringent. Not only would it last for the rest of his life, but he would essentially never be able to talk about B&W again. If he did, they would come after him. Jeff knew he didn't have a choice. In November 1993, he signed the NDA. Trapped and feeling under attack, Jeff's mental health started to deteriorate. The pressure from B&W and the way they seemed to have blacklisted him from new jobs prompted him to start drinking too much. His wife tried to talk to him about their financial situation, but Jeff put up walls unable to face what he considered his many failures. It was a dark time for the whole family. To make matters worse, tobacco was becoming a national conversation. Jeff started seeing more and more in the news about the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, turning up the heat on big tobacco. The FDA commissioner, David Kessler, had made it clear that the industry's freewheeling days were numbered. Perhaps, Jeff figured, he could be of some help to them. He couldn't talk about B&W. He wouldn't risk his severance package again. But he knew the ins and outs of big tobacco. If he couldn't get a job, he might as well do something useful. During his tenure at B&W, Jeff had been to a handful of meetings in Washington, D.C. Now he reached out tentatively to junior government officials he'd met, begging them to keep quiet about his identity. But the first person who wanted to talk to him wasn't a government official. One night in February 1994, the phone rang just as Jeff was going to bed. When he answered, the man's voice on the other line introduced itself as Lowell Bergman, a producer for the CBS news show 60 Minutes. He'd gotten Jeff's name from a scientist who was working with the FDA on tobacco issues. And he was going to be in Louisville in the morning if Jeff wanted to meet him for a coffee. 
As terrified as Jeff was, his desire to take action outweighed his fear. He went to meet Lowell in the morning. From the beginning, Jeff told the journalist that he couldn't talk about B&W, but that he wanted to help if he could. So Lowell asked him to help them understand boxes of research documents from tobacco giant Philip Morris that 60 Minutes had been given anonymously. Finally, Jeff had something to do. But what he found in the documents only infuriated him further. Philip Morris's research and development was years ahead of B&W's. They'd done research that B&W had told Jeff wasn't even possible, adjusting nicotine levels and even developing a fire-safe cigarette several years earlier. Like B&W, though, Philip Morris had buried everything, rather than try to make safer or less deadly cigarettes. That spring... In 1994, the FDA officially announced its investigation into big tobacco. The goal was to determine whether nicotine's pharmacological effects, most of all its addictiveness, were purposefully intended by tobacco manufacturers. If so, tobacco could be regulated as a drug, and cigarettes would fall under the agency's jurisdiction. In April, the FDA brought seven big tobacco executives to testify in front of Congress. Jeff watched on television as, under oath, all of them, including B&W CEO Thomas Sandifer Jr., stated that they believed nicotine was not addictive. To Jeff, Sandifer looked arrogant and overconfident as he calmly lied, apparently unconcerned about repercussions. When the FDA reached out to Jeff to ask for an interview, he didn't know what to do. He wanted to help, but he knew Big Tobacco would fight back with everything it had. He couldn't afford to get anywhere near this. In keeping with his NDA, Jeff had to let B&W know that the FDA had approached him. As this was exactly one of the areas he'd flagged for them, he had no doubt that they would do everything to keep him from talking. A couple of weeks later, they, or someone representing them, did. According to Jeff, one day in April 1994, the phone rang. When he answered, a man's voice snarled down the line, Leave tobacco alone, or else. How are your kids, Jeffrey? The line went dead. Jeff started to hyperventilate. He ran around the house, looking out windows and checking the doors. There was no one there. His wife and daughters begged to know what was wrong. Instead, Jeff poured himself a few fingers of whiskey and knocked it back in one go. Then he called Lowell, the CBS producer. Lowell reassured him it was just meant to scare him. It might even be a prank. They weren't really coming after Jeff's family. But Jeff became increasingly paranoid. A couple of weeks later, the phone rang again. It was the same voice on the other end. This time, the man drawled, Don't mess with tobacco. You'll find your kids hurt. They're pretty girls now. Not long after, Jeff found a bullet in his mailbox. It was yet another blow to Jeff's fragile mental health. He'd been trying to follow their rules, and still they were coming after him. 
By summer 1994, 51-year-old Jeff Wigand was a paranoid mess. His former employers, tobacco giant Brown and Williamson, hadn't just taken his job and livelihood. He believed that they, or their representatives, were also terrorizing him and his family in order to keep him quiet. But Jeff couldn't just let himself be intimidated. So he got back in touch with the FDA and told them he'd help as much as he could without breaking his confidentiality agreement with B&W. First, the Justice Department sent someone to interview him. Then the FDA flew him to D.C. to answer questions for the commissioner. Simultaneously, he continued to analyze documents for Lowell Bergman and CBS as a consultant on their tobacco stories. Around him, the fight between the government and Big Tobacco continued to heat up. A number of state attorneys general started to file lawsuits against Big Tobacco corporations, suing the companies for medical costs spent by the state on smokers who became ill. More and more documents were being leaked from within tobacco corporations. Both the FDA and the Justice Department opened further investigations into the behavior of Big Tobacco and its executives. The U.S. had become a battleground for the future of the tobacco industry. Lowell started to suggest that maybe it was time for Jeff to go on the record. After all, he was already helping behind the scenes. But Jeff was adamant. He couldn't jeopardize his family's financial security and health care by breaking the NDA. As much as he wanted to do more, his fear of B&W hung over him, feeding his paranoia. His drinking increased, and he became even jumpier and more anxious. He isolated himself from his family, and he and his wife fought regularly. One night in October 1994, when Jeff had been drinking, an argument with his wife resulted in a call to the police. When the officers arrived at the house, Lucretia claimed that Jeff had been out of control and abusive. He was arrested and taken to jail for the night. The charges against him were only dropped after he agreed to see a psychiatrist and a marriage counselor. Another time that fall, he'd stopped to buy booze, leaving his two young daughters in the car. Inside the store, he'd slipped a bottle of whiskey into his pocket. He claims that he then realized he'd left his money in the car. When he went outside to get it, with the bottle still in his pocket, the shop assistant accused him of shoplifting, and the police were called again. Eventually, the charge was dismissed without adjudication, but it was clear that Jeff was struggling. His wife was at the end of her tether, too. Something had to change. If Jeff didn't figure out a way to cope, he was going to lose his family. In January 1995, Jeff started a new job as a high school chemistry teacher in Louisville. It was a sharp come-down from the plush corporate world, but Jeff found he loved teaching. The steady paycheck also helped him finally stop being quite so scared of the B&W NDA's power over him. That spring, he told Lowell that he wanted to go on the record for 60 minutes. He was already advising on a number of cases, and his name was starting to get out there— He hadn't yet spoken about B&W specifically, but if he was going to violate the NDA, he wanted it to be with someone he trusted, like Lowell. 
That summer, Lowell and 60 Minutes host Mike Wallace flew Jeff to New York for an on-the-record interview. They promised him, though, that they wouldn't run the story until he was ready. When he sat down in front of the camera, Jeff knew he was taking a step he couldn't go back from. On tape, he revealed everything he'd discovered as the head of R&D at a big tobacco corporation. Not only that, but he answered Mike Wallace's questions about the intimidation he'd experienced since his firing and the stress that B&W had put him under with its NDA. And he made it clear that he was willing to endure this in order to reveal the truth about big tobacco to the American people. When B&W caught wind of what he'd done, it didn't take long for them to retaliate. In September 1995, the general counsel for CBS informed the news executives that they were going to have to pull the 60 Minutes story on Jeff, B&W, and Big Tobacco. Because Jeff was under a confidentiality agreement with B&W, CBS could be sued for tortious interference or convincing him to breach a contract. What the general counsel didn't say was that the son of the chairman of CBS was one of those tobacco executives who'd testified in front of Congress a year earlier. Journalists Lowell Bergman and Mike Wallace fought back. They had now been working on this story for a year and a half. Jeff had trusted them to get the truth out. The American public had the right to know that big tobacco was selling them harmful chemicals. Finally, in November 1995, they reached an agreement to air an abridged version of the program, but they had to cut Jeff's interview. But B&W went after Jeff anyway. They sued him for breach of contract and hit him with a temporary restraining order to stop him from ever discussing B&W and any confidential documents. Then they hired well-known PR guru John Scanlon to destroy his credibility. Scanlon put together a 500-page dossier of shocking allegations designed to paint Jeff as a lifelong liar and criminal. The dossier was then used to try to convince the press, the government, and Jeff's employer that they shouldn't trust him, claiming he was a domestic abuser and a lifelong thief and swindler. Once again, Jeff and his family were the target of abuse and intimidation, presumably from big tobacco representatives. His home office was broken into and his journals from his time at B&W taken. The FBI investigated death threats against him, and he hired security guards. One of his lawyer's offices was broken into. Four days after Jeff hired him, paperwork ransacked and a pile of burnt matches left by the door as a warning sign. And once again, Jeff's mental health spiraled. Jeff's wife couldn't take it anymore. She filed for divorce, officially citing spousal abuse, She told Jeff that she and the girls were in danger around him, both from him and the tobacco goons. At the same time that his life was falling apart, though, the Wall Street Journal got a hold of the PR guru's dossier of lies. The fight over big tobacco had become a huge news story, and the fact that a big-name PR guy was going after a former executive made for a big scoop. In January 1996, 
The Journal published a front-page story about Jeff. In it, the journalists showed how they'd checked every single claim in the dossier and found them all essentially baseless. In fact, the real story was how Jeff's former employer had gone to such lengths to destroy him. After that, with Jeff's name splashed across the headlines, CBS couldn't not run its interview with him. Lowell and Mike jumped into action. This time, though, they knew that B&W's intimidation of Jeff had to be part of their story. And so, in February 1996, the 60 Minutes program finally aired. Finally, more than 15 million Americans learned the dark truths about big tobacco and how far it had gone to keep them quiet. Overnight, Jeff became a national hero. He was the star witness in not just the Justice Department's case against big tobacco executives, but also in the state attorney general's lawsuit against the corporations. He testified in front of Congress and also in class action suits. But the battle against big tobacco was just warming up. Over the next few years, case after case went against them. An industry that had once seemed all-powerful and immovable began to be toppled. By the middle of 1998, Big Tobacco was forced to settle, paying states hundreds of millions of dollars, admitting that smoking was addictive and carcinogenic, and agreeing to change their policies to stop marketing to children. Congress implemented new safety measures and agreed that the FDA should regulate nicotine as a drug. Further financial penalties kneecapped the corporations and risked bankrupting them entirely if they didn't hit certain safety targets. And with the stories in the papers day after day, thousands of people realized just how dangerous cigarettes really were. While companies continued to produce cigarettes, it was a huge catalyst for change across the states and led to many anti-smoking campaigns. As for Jeff, it took several years for him to deal with the lawsuits between him and B&W and to rebuild his life. He continued teaching high school for a while before leaving to start an anti-tobacco nonprofit called Smoke Free Kids. Around the same time, he remarried and dedicated himself to repairing his relationship with his daughters, which had fractured during his fight with Big Tobacco. In 1999, Disney released a film called The Insider about Jeff and the CBS team at the peak of their fight to reveal the truth about the tobacco industry. Russell Crowe starred as Jeff. To this day, Jeff continues to work as a lecturer and consultant on tobacco-related issues and is now tackling questions about the safety of e-cigarettes. Current statistics suggest that cigarette smoking still causes about one in five deaths in the United States every year. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Jeffrey Wigand's fight against big tobacco, amongst the many sources we used, we found Vanity Fair's 1996 article, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and CBS's 60 Minutes episode on the big tobacco whistleblower, extremely helpful to our research. 
Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for Parcast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Kate Thorman and Grace Hetherington. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mix, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. Rodriguez.